Our second reading comes from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 4, beginning with the 11th verse. At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, A hot wind comes from me out of the bare heights in the desert toward my poor people, not to winnow or cleanse, a wind too strong for that. Now it is I who speak in judgment against them. For my people are foolish, they do not know me. They are stupid children, they have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil, but do not know how to do good. I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and lo, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and lo, there was no one at all, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and lo, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. Because of this, the earth shall mourn and the heavens above grow black, for I have spoken, I have purposed. I have not relented, nor will I turn back. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. Most holy and gracious God. May you send your spirit among this place and in each of our hearts and souls. That in the words to come, we can find your word for ourselves and our lives today. Amen. Well, there are those biblical texts and authors that we turn to in times when we need a little uplift. We need some joy in our lives. We are looking for that word to put a song in our hearts, to allow you to spontaneously start singing, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Well, Jeremiah is not one of those people. (laughs) Jeremiah, if you're familiar with the prophet, uh, has one thing after another, after another negative to say. The other day, I was talking to a friend of mine, and... Uh, his name is Jeremiah, and I, I, and I mentioned that I was preaching on Jeremiah uh, on Sunday, and he said, oh. And I thought to myself, I wonder if he actually has read the book of Jeremiah after he's named. And, and, and also better, I wonder what his parents were thinking. <laughs> They're like, this child looks like a Jeremiah. The, uh, one of the English words that I love that's been lost in our vocabulary uh, has to do with passages like this, a Jeremiah uh, that loud denunciation of people, a screed that sort of tears people down and brings people to their knees. A Jeremiah was something that uh, our congregational forebears loved to preach in the 17th century, and so since they loved to preach it, and I saw this on the lectionary, it's like, why, why can't I preach one too? <laughs> Channel the inner Puritan in me to find that Jeremiah. <laughs> so the question, though, is what, what do we do with a text like this, to be quite frank? I mean, it's a pretty negative text, pretty bleak. It seems to portray God as having God's finger on a trigger, nailing those people that God doesn't like. It's generally not a type of theology that we're all that comfortable with or all that happy with. And okay, yes, I, I grant that point. 
But one thing I like about Jeremiah is that he uses a particular lens to analyze the situation at the time. He's looking at his world through a theological lens. Now, we analyze things all the time. We're, we're, we're good analytical people. I know you. You people like to think, overanalyze things, overthink things, just like me. And so there are different lenses that you use to approach issues in the world. Let's say you're trying to decide if you want to buy a new car. You can approach the purchase of a new car from an economic lens and look at your bank account and say, this makes sense economically or it doesn't, or if I finance in this way, it will work or not. But you can look at it from a psychological perspective also and say, this car is a part of who I am in my being. I need this car to express my inner me. And that might win out over the economic lens, to be honest. (laughs) You might look at it from a sociological lens. I need this car because my neighbors have a car that's brand new, and so I need a new car too. My brother, uh, when he moved from the city of Chicago out to the suburbs, found himself in need of buying a car. And I remember going car shopping with him. (laughs) And he was insistent on buying an old, somewhat broken down car. And I'm like, Brad, you make a great salary. I don't know why you want to do this. He's like, no, but John, some of my bosses live in the same town, and I can't let them think that like, I'm trying to you know, show off or anything. So he went and intentionally bought this you know, sort of uh, very broken down car that eventually broke down entirely and had to get rid of. Um, he, has, he has since gotten over that. But the sociological pressures of things, those things play a role. Political pressures, I'm going to buy American. Historical things, like something in your life, like, oh, I remember when I was a kid, and that car meant so much to me, and this car reminds me of that car, and therefore, this fits into my personal narrative, and that's why I'm buying that car. Or you could use a theological lens. I think Jesus would like this car. (laughs) There are different ways of looking at issues. And you can do the same thing with any number of things in society. Right now, there's a fear of a recession coming on, okay? That fear of recession could be based on economic indicators, psychological indicators, sociological indicators, political indicators, historical indicators, perhaps even theological indicators. At least that's what Jeremiah would say. So here's Jeremiah. He's looking at, his, he's looking at these people that... He's looking at the people of Israel. This is in just before the great invasion of, of the king of Babylon into Judea. Uh, that eventually ended with the Babylonian captivity. This is just before that period when Jeremiah is preaching. And Jeremiah is preaching to a people who were the chosen people of God, according to his theological lens. God chose the people of Israel, chose them and brought them to the promise, brought Abraham to the promised land. God chose the people of Israel and brought them out of slavery in Egypt, gave them the law of Moses on Mount Sinai. There is a covenant between God and God's people. This is Jeremiah's perspective. It's simple. God will continue to be God for the people of Israel, provided that the people of Israel do their part and abide by God's laws. And when Jeremiah looks around, he sees those laws being violated. And he sees uh, the Babylonians on the borders. And he looks and he says, we are about to get the punishment that's coming to us for shattering this covenant that God gave us. We have not fulfilled our covenant, and now we will get just recompense for that error. And so this is what Jeremiah is preaching about. You messed up. You're evil. And now the Babylonians are coming. And it ain't going to be pretty. Now, while we we might not think in the same way as Jeremiah, or have quite the same perspective on the nature of covenant or the Mosaic law, 
Isn't there some part of this that does resonate, though? Is there some sort of eternal, this is a question, open question, is there some sort of eternal moral consciousness that exists? Are there eternal moral laws that are somehow deep-seated in each of us? Is that a real thing? And if so, what if those are violated consistently in a culture? Does that have theological import to it? Let's say you have a culture that over a long period of time prioritizes greed and selfishness and short-term thinking again and again and again and again and again. Does that have consequences eventually? Is there some way that, oh, if the moral fabric of a society continues to be fractured and frayed over a long enough period of time that it actually might have consequences? I mean, one of the issues with global warming and the issue of climate change is that it requires long-term planning and also sacrificing immediate self-interest in certain cases in order to try and have a better outcome for all. But what if humanity keeps breaking that? Is there a consequence? What if humanity decides to focus on maximizing immediate pleasure rather than some other goals where people get obsessed with athletic teams uh, to a point of making that their end, or they get obsessed with uh, particular TV shows and distractions, or going out with friends, or going out drinking, or doing other things, or having as many sexual interactions as you can, whatever the case may be, trying to fill that pleasure, those pleasure centers as much as possible. You go out, you meet someone, and, oh, what do you do? Like, what, do you, what, do you, what are your passions? And everything is about whatever, this is, whatever it is that feeds those pleasure centers. What about... Uh, what about happens when a society seems to be doing immoral actions and yet have those actions be sanctioned by society in some way, shape, or form? This past Friday, I was at a, an event organized by the Harris County uh, Democratic Lawyers Association that was brought in. They brought in a speaker uh, to talk about immigration and particularly about what's going on with children at the border. This professor they brought in from Wilmette University in Oregon uh, had led a group of lawyers doing legal work on the border. And so unlike when some of us went down to the border, these people were actually able to get into the facilities because they'd applied through legal means to actually speak with some of the individuals. And there's this website that they had uh, that they put together of these direct quotations of children uh, and their experiences on the southern border. And this was being read out at this luncheon. And the one thing that struck me was just like, I don't care what you t- feel about immigration. Like, th- these types of things just aren't right. Between 2010 and 2017, there were zero, of all the children detained in U.S. custody, not, not one died. Between 2017 and today, apparently seven have died in U.S. custody. That's just wrong. You know, keeping kids in conditions that are inhumane is just wrong. There was one story where uh, a mother was asked by her child, you know, whether they were in America yet. And she, she said she couldn't bring the child to tell to tell him that they were, because he had dreamed so much about what America would be like, and this was his reality. What happens when these sort of eternal moral things, if they exist at all, get violated? What happens? I think a a few months ago, I was listening in my car to William Schreier's book, The Rise and Fall uh, of the Third Reich. And the most interesting part of that book by far was in the 1930s. 
And one thing that's amazing about the Nazis in the 1930s is they really pulled off an economic miracle in Germany. An economic miracle far more impressive than the New Deal in the U.S., even more impressive than Stalin's five-year plans. Actually, the biggest economic turnaround of any country in the world at that time was in Nazi Germany. And before, where there was chaos in the streets and, and, and protests constantly and mob violence, all that was gone. Of course, there were downsides of living in Nazi Germany. Only one political party, no free press. You had a secret police state, but if you didn't go against the law, what difference did it make? Obviously, there were persecutions against Jews, against gypsies, against gays and lesbians, but hey, everything was great. But there's this deeper moral sort of, there were deeper moral issues that were being torn apart, and that had consequences. The uh, uh, Americans who helped found this country, the people who are the... uh, who started the American Revolution. These folks, when they went to college, they studied, they studied Greek and Latin. That was the sum total of their education. And the authors that got taught quite frequently are Plutarch and Livy, both of whom focus on a decline in morality in ancient Greece and Rome as being the fundamental reason for the collapse of those societies, which is one of the big reasons why the U.S. Constitution was written the way it was. How do you account for the fact that society, that human beings tend to fray this fabric. What do we do about that? What do you think? One approach is getting up and giving more Jeremiah ads. <laughs> Get up and decry <clears throat> some of the things that we see. The reality is we see Jeremiah's all the time in society today. <laughs> Both on the right and the left and intergenerationally. Those on the left say, oh, this is, you know... We see all this immoral stuff going on. The poor aren't being treated well. Health care needs to be accessible to all. The climate's being destroyed. Those on the right saying, uh, look at the sort of wanton dis- killing of babies. Uh, look at the decline in family values. Look at sort of excessive individualism. And there are these Jeremiads on both sides. What about intergenerational Jeremiads? I mean, you see younger generation looking at the baby boom and going, saying, baby boom generation is the most selfish generation in history. They have destroyed our country. They're going to suck it of all its worth, and then they're going to be dead and leave us to pick up the pieces. And then, of course, you have people critiquing the millennials, saying these millennials are the most self-centered, you know, selfish generation ever. They don't know anything about hard work or anything else. They just get everything handed to them on a platter. You ever heard those things? Back and forth. <laughs> Jeremiads, one thing back in the world. Does it get us anywhere? I'm not saying we should stop saying them, <laughs> stop bringing up these points. But Jeremiah was, lit, was, 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 was preaching at a time when the Babylonians were literally on the border. He and other prophets were preaching about the evils within ancient Israel at the time. And yet he still said, in spite of it all, we're sort of, maybe we've passed the point of no return. I don't know if we have in our society, but they certainly had in Jeremiah's time. But what's remarkable about Jeremiah is in spite of how bleak the situation was, And it must have been pretty bleak. Jeremiah is one of these prophets that never lost hope. You notice in the text for today, it says uh, that God said that, that, that God will not make a full end. In spite of all these things, God will not make a full end. My favorite thing that Jeremiah did, Jeremiah the prophet, for those of you who know the prophet, um, is literally with the Babylonians at the gate and destruction assured, Jeremiah goes out and buys property in Israel. Uh, not as an investment opportunity, <laughs> but as a sign of saying, I'm committed to this land in spite of all this. 
Jeremiah has this incredible amount of hope that goes through him in spite of just an incredibly dark view of looking at things. And also Jeremiah has this wonderful passage about something new. The communal covenant might be shattered in various ways. And maybe it's shattered beyond repair. Again, I pray not, but maybe it is. But Jeremiah's solution is to focus on an individual covenant, a new covenant that God makes with each of us. That this is a covenant that will be written on your hearts. And as Jeremiah says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. A new covenant written on your hearts. So if things are despairing in the world, if you look around and you read through, say, Jeremiah, and you're like, gosh, that sounds too much like what we're going through today. Jeremiah's solution? Focus on the new covenant that's in your heart. Your relationship with God. That's something you can focus on. Screaming and yelling in Jeremiah might not get us anywhere, but working on that individual covenant, maybe that's the answer. My dad, when he uh, was about my age, um, had uh, was starting a new business. I told this story before, but it's relevant here. He started a new business, and uh, the bank that he was borrowing his money from got caught up in the savings and loan scandal, and he had his loan called and his business destroyed. So here's someone where the sins of other people, the sins of society, were visited very directly on his head. And, this, and my father's response was actually to do a lot of internal searching. And for the first time in his life, he went out and sought a psychologist uh, and tried to think about what it is in his life that really gives him meaning and purpose. And coming out of that experience, as bad as it was, came a rededication to his family and in particular to his kids. And I remember this very clearly because he started once a week carving out time to take my sister and me out to McDonald's. Uh, and I would always get a Big Mac and my sister would always get a six-piece McNugget. That came out of this renewal of like, when all things are going wrong, what's the Jeremiah response? Where are you with God right now in your heart? I think about my junior year in college when uh, my junior year in college was the first time in my life I'm like, I'm doing no extracurriculars at all. I'm getting rid of all of them, Uh, except for my fraternity sort of social club party time. And I did nothing that fall. And I got to the end of the fall and I was like, where am I? I'm not really happy. The things that give me meaning and are me, I've sort of turned away from. And so that spring, I sort of recommitted to figuring out, where's, where's God in my heart? How can, I, how can I get that spot back? I had my most fulfilling academic experience of my entire college career that spring of my junior year by focusing on that. So there is this theological lens that Jeremiah offers for us. You can look at your life right now and examine it in any number of ways. And you should. Take it apart again economically, sociologically, psychologically. Look at your life through the lens of your own personal narrative history and all sorts of different things. But I think Jeremiah encourages us to say, hey, there's also a theological way of looking at this. Just like there's a theological way of looking at society. And in the chaos of society and the Jeremiahs that get tossed back and forth, can you come back to the new covenant that God's trying to call you in in your hearts? What is it right now for you that you think separates you from God? What could you do to change one thing to try and refine that center, that covenant, to reestablish that shattered covenant? The wind might be coming down from the north. Desolation might be all around us. People might be very negative and screaming at each other in debates. But for Jeremiah, there's hope. 
And the hope lies in a new covenant. And the new covenant's in you. And it's in your heart.